We had the attorney general on the board. We had the owner of the yacht. We had the Homeland Security agent. We had Tony Robbins and a bunch of Navy SEALs. The traffickers stand up and they said, one of them says, I'm going to go get the cocaine. One of them says, I'm going to go get the children. We can't have that. Where's the agents, right? And he said, listen to me. All those guys on the street that you were talking to, they all work for me. The police, they all work for me. You want to have a party in my city, in my country, you're going to go through me. My equity in the company is worth a hell of a lot more than my salary staying on. I would rather run my own hot dog stand than ask somebody when I could go to the bathroom. I ended up buying LeBron James's Range Rover. If they require an alarm clock to get out of bed every morning, then they don't have a big enough dream. So today in the leader seat, we have Mr. Paul Hutchison, an extraordinary figure whose journey from being an executive producer of the Sound of Freedom movie to becoming the founder of the Child Liberation Foundation has left a lasting mark on the world. Not only has Mr. Hutchinson had the first, was the first investor in the Sound of Freedom movie, but he has also spearheaded over 70 undercover rescue missions across 15 countries, saving countless children from unimaginable circumstances. Prior to his remarkable child rescue work, Paul co-founded Bridge Investment Group Partners, which has since grown to manage over $48 billion in assets and is publicly listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Get ready to be inspired, motivated, and moved by the incredible journey of Mr. Paul Hutchinson. Paul, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Nima. Excited to share with you and, uh, and your audience. Awesome. So let's get right into it. I want to start from the very beginning. Give us a little brief background of your upbringing and roots before we jump into anything else. Well, I, um, I had four younger sisters. I was kind of their protector. Um, had a next door neighbor who was mentally handicapped and and saw him as uh, somebody I would be protecting as well. And it developed a compassion for people of all types and, uh, and all capacities. And um, grew up in a pretty good neighborhood and a, and a pretty good home. We weren't wealthy by any means, but, uh, but it was safe. Um, in, in retrospect, finding out later there was, there was, you know, abuse in, in the family and stuff, not from our family, but outside. And, you know, that's kind of led to my compassion for people who have experienced that kind of challenges as children, not only being trafficked, but in other areas. And we'll, we'll go through in the details of that as well. Um, I, I was picked on a bunch when I was little, had really bad buck teeth, you know, and everybody called me Bucky. And, and you know, I ran for office a bunch of times and never made it. Yeah. <laughs> one of those. And, and, but I was picked to be a part of something called the peer leadership team, which, you know, if kids had, had abuse situations in the home or whatever, if they, if they brought that up to a teacher by law, the teacher had to take that to the authorities. But if they had a trained peer counselor, then we weren't required by law to do that. And, and we could help them through that. And, and, uh, I went through a bunch of training with that and had a beautiful experience in my high school years of being the president of the, the peer leadership team and, and helping people through some of those challenges. Um, fast forward, ended up um, getting married, was, uh, had three wonderful young, young boys and, uh, and build a company called the Midwest Center for Stress and Anxiety that helped people change the, 
the the negative habit patterns of thought that were creating anxiety and depression in the first place. And and that kind of tied into that part in my my childhood where I was I was helping people overcome some of these challenges that were keeping them from living a life of abundance. So so that was kind of the 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 childhood side. Uh, one thing that really impacted my life when I was about 14 years old. My I went to my dad. I was and I, I didn't have very many friends. I was trying to figure out how to deal with life and how to be successful. And I asked him, I said, Dad, how do you, how do you make friends and, and how do you become successful? What's that all about? And he gave me two gifts. One of them was an old, tattered, black book that was, that was written by Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. <laughs> and the other was a, an audio cassette tape program by Brian Tracy, The Psychology of Achievement. And through the book, I realized that the world wasn't all about me. If I wanted to have friends, I needed to be a friend. I, 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 I could attract more, more uh, bees with a, with a drop of honey than a gallon of gall type of a mindset, you know, and that every person I talked to was a thousand times more interested in themselves than they were me, you know, and all of these different things that I would learn. And then in the psychology of achievement, I realized how powerful our minds are in processing things that happen to us and things that of, of our present, our circumstances and our future, that it's not just our actions, but it's our words that create. And it's even our thoughts that create either a world of scarcity or a world of abundance and a world of, of, of happiness or a world of pain. And, and by helping, by taking those principles in my life, and then when we were building out the the anxiety and depression program, we had 50,000 people a month calling in off of an infomercial wow. to get help to change the way that they thought and thereby change the way that they felt. I, lo I love that. And I, I, I love psychology. And it's exactly that. It's, it's so crazy how powerful our minds is. And if we're able to just take over our own minds, we could accomplish so much. But uh, it's obviously not an easy task. It takes time. But it's uh, once you understand that, it's you can accomplish anything. In the world. So exactly. the Sound of Freedom movie, before you being connected with Tim Ballard, were you involved with helping child trafficking children? Or is that nothing that was not on the table? No, I was, um, I was very involved in child-related charities. <laughs> um, I made a decision in my early 20s that a large percentage of my money and my time would go to charity to helping those less fortunate than myself. And, and I, I didn't feel good about just giving a bunch of money to a bum on the street who was needing it for drug money and whatever, but yeah. a, a child in a position completely outside of any decisions that they made, that's, that's something I could really get behind. And so I served on a lot of different, with a lot of different charities and, and was on the board of directors for a number of them. In fact, the, the Make-A-Wish Board of Directors. I was on that for about seven years here in Utah. And I was the incoming chairman uh, for Make-A-Wish in the area when I got a call from our attorney general who said, hey, I've, I've got a Homeland Security agent who could use some help financially with some of the things he's doing. And, um, and he said, I want to talk to you about something pretty dark. I know you're involved in child-related charities, but this is this is, this is one of the darkest. And I'm like, well, you know, what can be darker than, you know, a child dying of cancer, you know, with, with the, with Make-A-Wish and others. And he said, well, he says, child trafficking, people selling children for organ harvesting, for sex trafficking, for labor, I mean, all these horrible things. And so, um, 
I couldn't believe it at first. I couldn't believe that that really happened. Um, I heard the stories from him and a Homeland Security agent and, and I'm like, oh, this is, this is dark, but you know, if, if, if $10,000, I can, I can send a little girl to Disneyland for a week with her family who's struggling with cancer. I can, I can put money behind this, you know, if, if it's going to cost two to $3,000 per child to pull them out of hell and get them back to their families, I can do that all day long. I couldn't imagine having my child in that kind of a situation. And so that's, that's how I was introduced. I wasn't involved in, but I, I, I did have some, some special skills from, uh, you know, uh, in hand-to-hand combat training with Krav Maga and, and, uh, I was really, really good with weapons, um, of taking countless courses, not only with, with, uh, firearms, with edge weapons and improvised all these different things. And so, you know, I, I, I had, I had the skills to keep me somewhat safe in a dangerous place, but there was a lot more than that that was needed to make this undercover operation work that was depicted in The Sound of Freedom. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You said you didn't really know much about child trafficking. And I could say for myself, until I saw the movie, it was never really something I thought of. And I, I'm assuming that is a big reason why the movie was made. So there is awareness to it. So you recognize it. Because even now, when I, if I see a little girl just running I, I, in, in the park, I'm like thinking exactly from the movie, like I'd be aware and be like, be aware of your surroundings. There's a scene in the movie, which I hope everyone at this point has seen the movie. It's, 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 I think one of the best, I honestly, before this movie, I haven't been to the movie theater in, man, I, I think like six, seven years. And that was the first movie I went to, to the theaters for. So it was a really, really good movie. So there's a scene in the movie where you guys were sitting down talking with the traffickers to plan the event on the island. Um, do you think at any moment that the traffickers were suspicious of you, whether it be that specific uh, mission or any other missions that you've been partaking in? There's been a few, and I'll tell you the the details of really what happened in that in that scene. So, I had gotten a call um, asking me to to help with this mission. I, I I thought that they needed more financial help. You know, they said we've we've identified up to fifty children in Cartagena area, more than a hundred in the surrounding areas, and and uh, we need your help. And I said, well, how much do you need? And I was told, I need you. Can you be in Colombia in two yeah. days? And uh, so two days later, I'm sitting there with these, these traffickers. We're at this restaurant area and um, I was picked up at the airport by two former Navy SEALs. They're badasses. I mean, they got tattoos and they're, they're big. I mean, I'm six feet tall. These guys are big. And uh, we pull up in this armored vehicle on this beach area that's that, 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 that hotel, I mean, the, the restaurant's overlooking the beach. And uh, they get out and the traffickers are looking down. They, they're up there with some of the other undercover operators. And um, they're, they're looking down at this, this beach scene of me pulling up with this undercover car and everything. And, and, and they're, they're, they're taking a hook, line, and sinker. They had already been shown my face and my, my profile and everything else and told that this guy can come down and, and fund this, this, this child brothel mm-hmm. sex resort that they wanted to build. And so when I walk up, they're, they're, they're pissing themselves. They're pretty excited that this guy that they already saw online, that's going to, you know, fund all of this stuff is, is super exciting. So, um, so we, uh, we, we walk into the restaurant and they are, they are so excited about this project moving forward. And, um, 
halfway through our meeting at the restaurant, one of them leans forward and he hands me this, his phone. He says, Pablo, I have a gift for you. I said, really, what's your gift? And he hands me a phone and there's, there's a picture of this 11-year-old girl on the phone. He says, this is Princess. She's still a virgin. We just took delivery of some. And now in the movie, that, that scene is depicted with, with, the, with Tim giving me a, a picture of this little girl and, and trying to convince me to come down. In real life, I was already there. I was already with the traffickers face to face and it was them that handed me, but that galvanized my commitment. And there's something he said that made me realize he had more than her as we, we were negotiating this big party that he was going to bring all these children that he could verify to me that he had all the kids necessary for this resort hotel thing. And when he said, we just took delivery of some of these virgins, I skipped. I said, you have, you have more, you have more virgins. He, oh yeah, we got three or four more. I said, you have to bring those. You're bringing those to the party too, right? He goes, oh no. He said, they're, they're, those are too expensive. I'm not too expensive. I'm already paying $25,000 for this party. I'm paying $500 per child for 50 children just for two hours in the afternoon with them. And I said, he said, he said, Hefe, he said, you already paid 25,000. You want to F those other virgins? It's going to cost you maybe 2,000, maybe 5,000 for that little one. It's going to cost you maybe 10,000 more. Now, I was legitimately mad, legitimately. I, I, I'm in, I'm in my, I'm, I've got a really nice suit. I've got, $2,000 cufflinks on a $50,000 watch. And I'm like, put my hands on my chest. And I'm like, you don't think I can afford an extra $10,000? He's like, oh no, jefe, no. I said, I want every one of those virgins at my party. I said, they damn well better be virgins when they get there. They're not for you. They're for me and my, my team. You understand? He goes, oh yeah, jefe, I understand this stupid smile on his face, right? I was legitimately mad. And my, the Navy SEAL that was right behind me uh, he, he, he excused himself when, when they showed him the picture and he said, I have to go walk around the restaurant, make sure everything's all, all safe and stuff. Later in debriefing, he said, he said, that little girl looked just like my daughter at home. He said, I almost unholstered my weapon right there and took him out. Uh, but I knew if I did that, we were going to lose all those kids. So there, there was, there was that there was, and then another in that, that wasn't depicted in the movie because it would have taken too long. When the two weeks later, the guys had met with a, uh, with the um, the U.S. Embassy, the Colombian federal agents, they provided all these agents for us. Four of them were like our waits and our mater, waiters and our cooks. They're not very good cooks, but they're yeah. armed. And 25 were there to storm the party at the right time. And these guys showed up with 54 children. Wow. Almost every one of them were under the age of 16, 17 years old. Many of them were, were taken from other countries as well. We put the children in this separate place in the house. They're already traumatized enough. And we're sitting there, we have undercover cameras that are collecting all the information because we never want the children to, to have to stand trial, right? Yeah. And we're sitting there in this negotiation and, and all of a sudden, boom, we hear a boom. Like one of the cameras, undercover cameras fell, right? Fortunately, the traffickers didn't notice because they were so involved Not with that. this design that we were drawing out for the thing, right? So that was, that was sketchy. Secondly, we were supposed to, once we had all the information, we were supposed to, to give a sign. It was, we're going to order tequila. And once we order tequila, then, then within two or three minutes, all of the special agents were going to storm the party and arrest us all. Well, we ordered tequila. Two minutes passes, five, 10, 15, 20. It was 45 minutes later. Now in the movie, we depicted that as them waiting for the other boat and stuff. In reality, all 54 children were there. The delay 
was the agents not showing up because the, the, the lady who was part of Child Protective Services like slept in through her alarm that morning and she told the, the federal agents, you can't do the sting until I'm there. We didn't know that. We, we, all we knew is we were sitting there with all the traffickers. We ordered tequila, time for the party to start. We, they bring the tequila in, the, the, the traffickers stand up and they said, one of them says, I'm going to go get the cocaine. One of them says, I'm going to go get the children. We can't have that. Where's the agents, right? We can't have the kids come in. And so, so we're now at this point, this was, I believe, divine intervention that I was there. Not because I'm so freaking smart, but because I had negotiated hundreds of business plans, right? And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, guys, you bring out that cocaine, you bring out those kids. I'm going to be effed up for the next three, three, four days. You've already proven that you could provide what you said you could provide. So here's the deal. Somebody bring me a, a notebook and a pen. We're going we're gonna to draw out a business plan right now. In fact, that business plan that we drew out with them was the, the subject line. This is how we found out really how they were getting the kids and real, all of this detailed information. And I'm telling you, Nima, this was the darkest business plan you could imagine. Yeah, you could imagine now. It was, it was off the charts. And the, the scary thing is it penciled. And it, 45 minutes of going through details on this business plan with them, where they're getting the kids, how much they're paying for them, how much wow. they rent them out for, all of this stuff, super dark. So, you know, that's a, a long answer to your short question. I could go into deep detail on it, but, but that every single undercover operation, there have been situations where, where it got super dangerous. In fact, if we have time later, I'll tell you about another one in Latin America where the trafficker asked me to show me, a, show me, my, show him my phone. That was, oh, that was scary. <laughs> so it, it's funny you brought up the business aspect. I was going to ask you this question. Um, being a very successful businessman, what did you take away from your business um, journey and your success in business and brought it into, you kind of answered it a little bit, brought it into, you know, helping you uh, be more relaxed or being able to accomplish your mission that you're on. What was some key facts that you've learned in business and you brought in here? Well, first one was, of course, that the business Cartagena, yeah. <laughs> literally going through this business plan with them in detail. Uh, secondly, you know, there's, there's, um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, we were in another Latin American country and this, we had met with this high level trafficker. We, we had worked our way up from the guys that are on the street selling cocaine to the guy who's actually selling kids. And then he's like, you know what, I'm going to take you to see my boss. And that's where we really want to be. We want to get to the boss's yeah. boss's boss so that we can really find out who's got the kids or where they're keeping them, et cetera. And at, at this point, we, we, we pull up. This guy is man in charge. He's got multiple guys that you can see that have got guns on us just watching in this, this public area that we're in. And we get out and, um, and he said, he said, uh, he said, I hear you're, you're wanting to have a, uh, have a party. And I said, I hear you're the guy that can get me what we're looking for. He says, I am, I've got everything you want. He said, um, um, he said, how much are you going to pay? And I, he said, I said, well, you know, I'll pay, I'll pay $200 a piece for him. You know, I'm, I'm, he said, he said, no, you're going to pay me $500 each. I'm like, why would I pay you 500? I can go to, I can go to Cancun right now and pay 200 a piece. I'm only needing for two hours in the afternoon, right? Is that kind of an energy that, that, that negotiating I'm Paul F and Hutchinson energy that these traffickers are looking for. Right. It's the Jeffrey Epstein's of the world that fly down there with egos and checkbooks. They can see through fake money all day long. Right. 
And so if I was like, you know, head on the swivel, whatever outlet, instead I'm in his face. I'm like, why would I pay you $500 each when I can get them for two? And he's like, how old were they? I said, they're 13, 14. He said, all of mine are under 13. I said, you're right. I'll pay you 500 each for those. I said, and then, then what about, um, he said, he said, I said, and I'll pay you $2,000 for the zero kilometers, you know, cause if we can get the kids out before they're ever raped the first time, that's a miracle. And so if I can get those ones and save them before they're ever touched, that's huge. And he goes, no, he says, you're going to pay me 5,000. That's for the little fat ones. You know, it was this kind of back and forth energy, ego, ego, right? And I said, you know what? Uh, and I've got, I've got, I know I've got guns on me. So I can't, I can't be too hard on him, but I need to make sure there's a carrot out in front of this guy, right? And, and I said, I said, you're right. I, I like you. I said, tell you what, I'll do the same deal with you that I did with these other guys. My boss will kill me and my whole family if I, if I taste the candy before the party, but I have to verify that you have it. So I'm going to pay you a hundred dollars for each one that you can, you can show me. This is how I get them to take us where they're holding them. So we can either geotag the location so it can be a sting later or that they can bring them out to a place where we can then do the sting there. And he said, he's, so I said, I'll pay you a hundred bucks for each one that you show me right now. He goes, nope. He says, you're going to pay me $2,000 right now. And now again, this is a, he's testing me right? I'm like, why would I pay you 2000 right now? I said, you, you told me you're going to show me, show up with cocaine at my party. I'm not going to pay you for it right now and hope that you're going to show up with cocaine. How do I know that you can provide what you say you can provide? He says, you listen to me carefully. He said, you ask any mother effer in this city if I can provide what I, he said, listen to me. All those guys on the street that you were talking to, they all work for me. The police, they all work for me. You want to have a party in my city, in my country, you're going to go through me and you're going to pay me 2000 right now. You know, so this is the, yeah. this is the kind of stuff that it's, it's, uh, it's ego on ego. And, and I've got to know number one, that I can handle myself as if crap hit the fan, but that's the kind of guys that are down there that are doing these horrible things. And that's what the traffickers are looking for. That's why it worked well with those 70 plus undercover rescue missions beyond the one in Cancun or beyond the one in, in, Car in Cartagena, Colombia, where I was not just, you know, this big rich guy, but actually going in and working for one, it, it was that same kind of a negotiating power and, yeah. and, and whatnot that was there. So the, the movies raised over $160 million. So congrats on that. But it was an easy journey. And this movie wasn't recently shot. It's been shot for a while. What is the real reason why this movie was held back by Hollywood and trying to have it be a big, like hold it back from being a big success. It's such a positive awareness to bring to something. Like I said, before I watched the movie, I don't even think I would have thought about anything about child trafficking. So the movie has caused positive awareness for society. Why is Hollywood trying to push back on positive? It just makes no sense to me. Obviously, you, 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 yeah, have makes... the you might have the answer more than me because you're in it. And um, has things changed now since... It's been such a success. Are they like back backward, like walking back? Like, no, oh, sorry, we these, made a mistake. This is this is what you. The, the answer to that question will tell you what their agenda is. Here's the thing, Nima. Um, back years and years ago, Angel Studios and others like them have put together some different types of software that allowed you to watch rated R movies in your home with your young children 
and allowed you as the parent to determine what level of yeah. sex you wanted in that movie and what level of, of profanity and what level of violence, et cetera, right? You had that choice of what to bring into your home. But your choice was taken from you by Hollywood and big media suing companies like Angel Studios and others for even creating the tools that you could use as a parent to filter what was coming into your home. Yeah. That, that had nothing to do with their bottom line financially. It had everything to do with their agenda, right? That agenda of slowly but surely taking away you and your family from a place of, of, of a solid moral compass. That's what it was about. It, you can see it plain and clear with, with the types of movies that are coming into your home now and the things that you and I look at as normal now. Hey, you know, whatever, you know, as long as it's not an NC-17, then I'm okay with that degree of sex and that degree of violence and that degree of profanity in my home, right? Where is that line today? Where was it 10 years ago, 20 years ago? And where is it going to be in 10 years from now? We have to ask ourselves, really, what is being censored and what is not allowed to be censored? right? They are big, big media censoring all kinds of stuff that is different from their agenda. Yet they're not allowing you as a parent to censor specific things coming into your home with your family. So that agenda has been on the table for a long time. And when this, when, when we, we finished this more than five years ago, we were pushed back everywhere. In fact, even before we filmed it, we went into guys at Sony and Lionsgate and Paramount, and there was interest in the storyline. But it came with a caveat. They wanted full control. They could have done whatever they wanted with the film. They could have had the storyline be one of my operators doing some horrible thing with a child halfway through. They could, have, they, could have, they could have tabled it for 10 years and never done anything with it and never brought it out to the public. And so we said, you know what? The only way we're going to do this is we have to fund it privately. So I was the first money in the film. I, I paid the first uh, uh, $600,000 with myself and a couple of my close friends to, to get everything necessary to, for all of the, the pre-production work, all of the, yeah. the writing. In fact, the script was written at my cabin, you know, this, the, all of this stuff we took personally to make sure it happened. And even after that, we knew we couldn't just take that finished script out to any Hollywood producer. We need guys who had the right heart, the right mind. And then after that, distribution was cut off on every pass for the next five years. I think a key word that stood out to me um, from your answer was censorship. I think we're in an era where not only are we trying to get censored through movies, we're trying to get censored. We can't even speak, I feel like. If, you get, if we say something wrong during this podcast, it's on YouTube, it's probably going to get taken down. That's how censorship is. What do you think made that switch of like, you know, the, I guess in America, you landed a free and all these words, you know, like all that. Where did that switch come from? I feel like we didn't even see it come. Like, how did it happen? What is the cause of it? Is, do, you, do you have an opinion or an answer on that? Yeah, we've, we've been blinded for a long time. Understand that censorship has happened for thousands of years and we have allowed it right? Um, we have to ask ourselves, we're, we're, you know, from a Christian standpoint, were all of the sacred writings written at the time of Christ, were they all included in the Bible? Which ones weren't and why, right? If, if somebody is a, is a Muslim, 
were all of the writings put together in the beginning by Muhammad put into the, the, the Quran and, and which ones were left out and why? And were there, were there political leaders throughout all of history that had agendas of control that would make people believe that we had to go through them to get to God? And in this case today, um, a, a slow, I, I believe that the, that the rally cry of the sound of freedom is not just the children in Cartagena, Colombia that were rejoicing when they were rescued, okay? The sound of freedom should be a rally cry for all of us as good, free Americans. Not to rebel against the government and create a civil war, but to stand up against tyranny in all forms. To say, okay, where am I a slave? Where am I a slave today? Am I a slave to my addictions to pornography? Am I a slave to, to alcoholism? Am I a slave to big media? Am I a slave to Hollywood? What things am I a slave for? And what have I allowed myself to slowly go down this road of slavery? Because we've allowed it. We've allowed ourselves to be addicted to these things. We've allowed ourselves to be censored and controlled. We've allowed it. And, and slowly, slowly, those freedoms are being taken away from us to the point where now you and I have to worry about not having our First Amendment protecting our ability to share real truth on, on the social media platforms. It's a sad situation, but unless something is being done now by the masses, it will continue. The only way that the that, that, that sound of freedom was able to be brought to the world was for the people, by the people. It was a grassroots movement of millions of good men and women that said, you know what? I'm not going to be told by Hollywood what I can enjoy. And I'm going to promote this to my friends and family because this is good information. This is good entertainment. And this is making us aware of something that is real that we need to fix. The, the scary part about this is, is that we are in a time where me and you, we've gone through a time where we've seen the other side, the, the bright side. Our kids really haven't. So they're being pushed on this thinking that this is the norm and this is okay. That's the scary part for me is that we need to just, yeah, speak up. A lot of people are scared to speak up because, you know, their work they might get fired or whatever it might be. But I feel like um, we just got to step up and talk. And people like yourself and your team and even the movie Sound of Freedom doing these things makes people be like, oh, I can speak up and it will have a positive impact. Forget these people, the people that are going to believe in it are going to come behind me and support me. Exactly. Exactly. So, and you're exactly right. It's we have to do this for our kids. Yeah. Because if you continue the trajectory of the last 30, 40 years, then 20 years from now is going to be a oh, very yeah. restrictive place to live. And so many of our freedoms are being given up day by day. Those freedoms are being given up and, and they've, they've weaponized the, uh, uh, big government in a way that's, that's super scary. And it's taking away the things that our forefathers fought for. Yeah. I want to um, steer away from the movie for a minute, if you don't mind, and talk about you. Because I, I love your journey. And I, I, an hour with you is not enough. I need like five <laughs> hours to get everything. But um, you initially wanted to be, be, a, be a pediatric heart surgeon and a business owner. But then your dad advised you that pursuing business might not be the thing for you because you're not good at kissing butt. 
after having become <laughs> a successful businessman, what are your thoughts about what your dad's statement was? And do you have to be good at, kiss, at um, kissing butt to be a good businessman? Well, my dad's journey to success in business was in the climbing the corporate ladder. And, uh, and yeah, you've got to be good at, 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 uh, at kissing butt to be able to make that work. And, uh, my, my, my role was my road to success was, was being an entrepreneur because yeah, he was right. I, I would rather run my own hot dog stand than ask somebody when I could go to the bathroom. Right. <laughs> and it was just how I, and, you know, and it falls in line with my philosophy today and seeing our freedoms being taken away. And, and so I, I was not interested from a young age of having those freedoms taken away from me, especially, I would rather make sure that I disciplined myself to be as, as productive as possible in running my own companies rather than go through that process of having somebody else discipline me. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, I, uh, I had to go down that entrepreneurial road in order to be successful. And even then, you know, that as the company got big and we were in 2017, um, we were, we were billions of dollars under management. And I was the co-founder of the fund with, uh, with John Pennington. We had funded the fund side, but there was other companies that we had brought in that we, we own like 60%, they own 40% of their companies, but we, we together had this conglomerate of leaders that have been, you know, in their property management companies and everything for a long time. And I remember one of the straws that broke my back. I was, uh, we were, we, we had a closing of the fund. There was, uh, uh, one of the partners in the company was named Dean. Dean was early on in the property management side, but he definitely wasn't part of the fund side when John and I were building it. And, uh, Dean was, was part of the team of capital markets that we were raising money. And I had raised a lot of money that last quarter and the, the, the closing was coming up, but there was one of the undercover rescue missions that needed me to be in Latin America. So I'm on the phone with him going through the details of the investors that I had brought in that week. And he hears the overhead of the, the lady on the plane. And he said, where the hell are you? I'm like, well, I'm, I'm on an airplane. I, I'm, hey, where are you going? I said, I'm, I'm heading to Latin America. He said that, that, and he said his exact words were, that damn charity thing with the kids again? I said, what? Right? He said, Paul, we have, we have a closing this weekend. I said, and I've brought in more than anybody for this closing. I said, here's the deal. I said, I'm done. I, I don't report to you. I don't report to the board. I report to God and to myself. And me being undercover, rescuing those kids is way more important than your effing closing deed, right? So after that undercover rescue mission, I came back, went into the board of directors and said, look, guys, my equity in the company is worth a hell of a lot more than my salary staying on. So I'm done. I'm done. You know, I'm not even, I'm not going to deal with that energy anymore. There's way more important things for me to be doing. Did they, so, did they ever try, try to change their mind when they, when you said that? Yeah, they did. But I said, I said, no, I said, too late. I said, too late. I'm, I'm, I'm done. And, you know, they were. The, the fundamentals of what we use to start the company, we're, we're starting to move. Mm. You know, guys like him were involved and, you know, that the, I had committed early on a huge percentage of the company was going to charity. That number dwindled to a few percent, if that, right? And then they also were, were more concerned about making sure that there was, that there was 
uh, management fees coming in from everything than, than making sure that the investors had the returns that, that they had invested for. I'm like, you know what? I, I don't, I don't do, I don't do businesses out of integrity. And I believe that that's where this is. So, you know, you guys continue down this road. I'm going to focus on what I believe I'm here to do. It's interesting you brought that up. So I, the mission kind of changed over time. How have you managed to build wealth while being cautious of finding the right partners? Because that's what it seems like the issue is right there. And that's a big part of business. I'm Myself, I, I haven't gotten $48 billion businesses started, but, you know, I have little things here and there. And the right partners is so hard to find because it seems like you start on the right path with the person because you're both motivated, ready to go. But as time goes by, it just something happens where it steers away. I mean, look at Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, how it started and how it <laughs> steered away. It's, 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 Absolutely. it's a common thing. And, and the sad thing is when, when the money starts rolling in or when the money doesn't roll in, yeah. that's when you know people's real character, right? Yeah. Yeah. When things get really rough. I remember um, early on, John and I, our, our first company was Bridge Loan Capital. We were, this is where the bridge name came from, that Bridge yes. Investment Group came later. So it was just the two of us. And we were in this little office. It was so small. We would bump elbows as we turned around. And it was, we were paying like $300 a month for this place. And we, we, uh, we had built the fund up to $10 million under management, which we thought was huge back then, you know, in this little teeny tiny office. And the reason John and I worked well together is that all, both of us worked with impeccable integrity, impeccable. It was, there was, there was a lot of other guys that were starting out in the fund business that were like, okay, you know, why are you, why are you paying all of this money out of your pocket, Paul, for, to be qualified with the SEC and all of this stuff, you know, it really doesn't matter. You just put the money in bank account and whatever else. And if, but these guys, some of them ended up going to jail. Others ended up getting sued. John and I, we made sure that, that, that we set standards in place where it was impossible for he or I to go use other people's money to go buy ourselves a Ferrari. We couldn't do it. We, we put those standards in place from the beginning. And then when the market turned in 2008 and everybody else was losing stuff and, and a lot of people were abandoning ship on their, their financial models that they were doing, they're just, okay, hey, sorry, investors, do whatever you want. John and I said, no, we're going to operate from pure integrity and we're going to stay on this boat and we're going to steer it as long as we have to to make sure that we protect the money of our investors. And we worked for free for years. However, all of our investors saw our integrity. And because of that, when we, when we created Bridge Investment Group, we, the first year we raised, you know, a few million dollars and it grew and grew and grew. And pretty soon we were, we were billions of dollars under management. In fact, in, you know, we, we actually launched it together in right after the 2008 crisis where everybody else was losing 20, 30, 50%. But we hadn't lost anybody's principle coming into that. And they saw that we were operating from integrity and they were scared. They needed to put their money somewhere. They didn't want to just put it all in their bank or underneath their mattress. And so we raised hundreds of millions of dollars early on when the market was crashing. And now we had cash when the banks were in a position where they had all of these assets at pennies on the dollar. So in 2009, 2010, we end up with 40% per plus returns on these on these these strategies that we were doing and we over the next 15 years averaged a 23.2 percent net net return to our investors with without losing any principal because we 
we, we were operating with integrity right from the beginning when things were rough. So, you know, that's, that's really the key. That's why John and I worked well together. We had very, very different personalities. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm, I'm like the, the, um, the bulldog on the front of the Mack truck, you know, or out there, John's the engine. He's hidden <laughs> underneath. You can't even see him, but really that's the power behind it, right? Yeah. So I'm the kite, he's the string. I knew that without that string, I, a kite would crash and burn really, really fast. And so I needed somebody who could cross the T's, dot the I's, but would do so with impeccable integrity so that I felt confident in every single meeting I had and bringing in the investor dollars that, that the, system was set up on the back end to be able to take care of it all. If you that to, was the key. If you had to pick one thing for it to ha a trait to have it a business partner, would it be respect or loyalty? Number one would be integrity. But I think loyalty is important, but loyalty is nothing without integrity, right? If you've got, if you've got a, a if you're out of integrity and you've got a business partner that's super loyal to you just because he's loyal, no, you, you, don't, you don't maintain loyalty to somebody who's out of integrity. You don't, you know, that puts you in the same boat as them. And so, so yeah. I, I don't put that value on loyalty that is blind loyalty. I really don't unless, unless the integrity is there. Yeah, I agree. Um, two words, wealth and time. These are two, the two words that you're very familiar with because a business friend of yours advised you to build a business the right way to gain both wealth and time. What are some strategic moves that you make sure that you eventually create this balance in your business? Years ago, um, one of my mentors introduced me to Robert Kiyosaki. This is, this is back before he sold any books, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Cashflow Quad, and all of those. And he, he drew out on this napkin. We were at an airport. He drew out on this napkin, this this uh, uh, cash flow quadrant and, he, and this, this, this teeter-totter of time and money. And he talked about building a business that owns you versus building a business that you own. And, and he, he gave this example of, of these, these, uh, this little town and they're walking up this, this little uh, pathway to this lake and they buckets of water coming down and then they put out the bid to two guys that they would earn some money, $5 every bucket load. And one was carrying buckets, carrying buckets, carrying buckets, carrying buckets. The other started building a pipeline. And once that pipeline was built, he turned it on. He's earning $5, $5, $5. And so he asked me, he said, Paul, every business that you build, you need to ask yourself, are you hauling buckets or are you building pipelines? He said, because once you've built an effective pipeline, then you have time and money both. If you haven't, if you're hauling buckets, if you're trading time for money for things, you're going to do it forever. And so make sure that, that as you're building your business, you're putting together systems that are duplicatable that you can teach so that that can run with or without you while you're, while you're sleeping. Yeah. Well, I, I don't even know what the response to that. I think I have, I, I, I suggest the listeners rewind and listen to that. Cause I think I, I want to listen to the recording and rewind and listen to it. Cause <laughs> that was a, that was a wealth of knowledge. So it seems like as a businessman, you were, you were in, um, introduced to a lot of, uh, influential people. One of those people being Tony Robbins. Could you share how your relationship with Tony began and the impact he's had on your life and career? Uh, Tony, my relationship with Tony began years before Tony ever knew my name. Oh, wow. And, uh, it was, it was in my early twenties when I, 
when I realized that controlling my energy and focusing on that, that my mind and my, my thoughts and my words would really create my future, I realized that it wasn't the law of attraction. It in reality was the law of creation where, where, where we're creating this world of sadness or happiness or wealth or all of these things. And so I would wear out those tapes and loved what he represented and the motivation that I received from it as I was building my companies. I mean, I would, I would listen to Tony Robbins tapes that I was, I was driving home at midnight after building my other side business while I still had to wake up at 6 a.m. the next morning to go to work, you know, just to be able to pay the bills. Well, fast forward, um, there was a, a big conference in which Tony was, was asking the people in the conference. He said, you know, if you had, if you had a, a million dollars today, what would you do with it? What would you do with that? You, you, you. He said, and, and somebody raised her hand and she said, I would, I would donate it to this foundation to help with child trafficking. And this is back when I was working with, uh, uh, with, with Tim, the Homeland Security agent and a former organization. Um, just full disclosure, five years ago, I made a, a, a very, I had fundamental differences between myself and, and that foundation. Um, and so we, we created our own foundation since that time and have moved on. But back then she was like, you know, I, I donated to this foundation and I'd help out with, so he's like, oh, tell me more about that. So he was intrigued and wanted to go and see an undercover rescue mission. Now I had been deep cover in, uh, in this certain country for about two and a half, three months. I had been in eight, nine different times working to cut the head off the dragon. I was tired of trafficking continuing to come up over and over again. And so not just taking down one trafficker, but finding out whose boss's 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 boss is actually holding the children, who's controlling trafficking in that area. And so uh, Tony wanted to see a rescue firsthand and the operators that were working with him said, Tony, we can't hide you. <laughs> you know, you're, you're almost seven feet tall. Everybody knows what you sound like. And uh, so they had a, uh, a Hollywood makeup artist put a big beard on him and, and make it so you couldn't even tell it was him. Even then, you can't have him stand up and can't. And in reality, we couldn't take him at 2 a.m. In, in the downtown capital city. That's super dangerous. But what we did have is a friend of mine who was an investor in my funds had a yacht, beautiful catamaran yacht. He said, Paul, if you ever need to use my yacht for one of these rescue missions, just let me know. So we called him up and said, hey, where's your yacht right now? He says, oh, it's in Florida. I said, great, fantastic go ahead and take it to this location and have it. And you can be there. And so we had, we had the attorney general on the board. We had the owner of the yacht. We had the Homeland security agent. We had Tony Robbins and a bunch of Navy seals that, that are on this yacht, just right off the coast. And I told the traffickers, listen, my boss, my boss is here with the yacht. We're going to have this big party, you know, so bring all the kids. So boom, they bring all of the children to this this beach area, we put the children. And so Tony could see them, you know, out there on yeah. the beach. We put the children in a safe little cabana area, gave them ice cream and drinks and stuff. And I told the traffickers, look, the boss is on the yacht. We're going to go see him. No knives, no guns, no problem. Right. Right. And so we, we make sure they have no weapons and we get on this little dinghy and we go out with just me and the traffickers and one of my operators out to this yacht where they have undercover cameras that are that are there where we have this conversation this mm -hmm. dark conversation with them tony is laying there on a on a uh, on a uh, couch with a beautiful woman that's waving him you know not saying a word but he can hear everything in that conversation about where they got the kids how old they are what they were willing to do all of this stuff 
you know, and I had been deep cover for a long time. So they did a, they did a documentary on this where, you know, my face is blurred. If you, if you, if you didn't know who I was, you'd hate my guts because they don't have cameras when I'm 2 a.m. So the only cameras were there. I'm laughing with the traffickers or whatever. So then I go back with the traffickers to the shore. The yacht takes off and the agents come and storm and arrest me and all the traffickers. Bad guys think that I got extradited to the USS Tan trial. So after that, you know, they of course don't take me to the police center. They take me to the airport and there's a private jet there and I get on. And one of the most beautiful experiences of my life is I walk onto that plane, Tony's big, huge hands, ball, you know, clapping. He says, I just want to spend the next four hours with you just learning everything about how that wow. operation went down. It was such a beautiful opportunity to connect with one of my mentors for a long time in sharing what had happened on that rescue mission. Wow. That is, that is a great, great story. Wow. So there's the many, there's many A-list celebrities actually that created videos on social media to push and promote the video of Sound of Freedom. Obviously, we're at the center of, sound of uh, social media, the, the era of social media right now. Do you think the movie would have been as big if it wasn't for social media? No, no. Social media, of course, has, just like every new invention, has ways that the light and the dark can both use it for their advantage. You know, there's, there's, there's horrible things from social media with these young kids seeing this fake lifestyle of everybody else and thinking that they're not good enough, et cetera. But I believe that the technology of today allow people like you and I to speak once and our voices to be heard by millions of people. And that's what is, is here with, with social media today is that fortunately there are so many good people that are coming forth and saying, yeah, there are problems. There are problems with Hollywood. There are problems with the systems of control that you're being uh, handed to right now. But we can use our voices to create freedom, to create liberty for everybody. But it starts with awareness. So, yeah, I'm yeah. super grateful for those tools that allow us to spread it to the world. That, I mean, honestly, to be honest with you, that's how I heard about it. Um, I'm not sure if you know who Patrick Bat David is, but he posted about it. And that's how, that's how I heard about it. So... Social media is definitely the way to go. You often mentioned that any job should be a learning opportunity, not just the paycheck. You explain how you approach personal growth and learning in your career. I had a mentor early on in my career. He said, Paul, he said, if you're going to have a J-O-B, a just overbroke in a job, he said, if you're going to have a job, make sure it's in line with where you want to be five and 10 years from now. He said, work to learn. Don't work to earn. He said, if you're there for a paycheck, you're wasting your time. You need to go find another thing to be doing. And, um, and so that education comes in multiple ways. Number one, um, he said, Paul, he said, your, your car should be a university on wheels. He said, everywhere you go, the, the most valuable piece of real estate you'll ever own is the six inches between your ears. He said, figure out how to cultivate that. And you'll be infinitely more successful throughout your life. He said, every time, if you're not on a phone call, if you're not actually talking to somebody, make sure you're listening. There's audio programs on business and leadership and relationships and finance, all of these things. And so I did. My, in fact, my kids joke. They say, dad, uh, I, I ended up buying, they, they say, 
They said, Dad, the only reason why you like 80s music is that's the last thing you ever heard, right? <laughs> and I ended up buying LeBron James's Range Rover. And this thing is gorgeous. The rims are $5,000 each, right? And he had these huge subwoofers, like $60,000 worth of just subwoofers in the back. And my, my kids were like, Dad, what are you going to do? Listen to your, your self-help programs on your $60,000 subwoofers? I said, yeah, that's what allowed me to buy those $60,000 subwoofers. Right? <laughs> and so that education everywhere that I went is super valuable. And people ask me, they say, wow, what I would give for that four hours with Tony Robbins when you were flying back and all that, the other communication you've had, what, what I would give for that. And I ask him this, I say, what do you think that he would tell you that he's not already telling you on yeah. his audio programs? He's giving you the best stuff right there. Now, yeah, you might be able to get some personal coaching there, but a lot of these great thought leaders, they're giving you their very best stuff right now. I'm here on this film, on this interview. This is my best stuff. You know, you sit down one-on-one -on -one with me. Yeah, we might, we might, you know, shoot the crap and whatnot, but we're in, my best stuff is here. You know, there's so much stuff that you can listen to to educate yourself and you can have mentors that you've never met yeah. and, and educate yourself on business and finance and leadership, et cetera. And the number two thing that I did in business, besides filling up my mind with all of the, the audio programs, number two is my mentor told me, Paul, find the guys who are the very best at what you do, whatever, whatever it is. In that case, I was at a call center selling cold call and selling children's videos, right? I was in my early 20s. And, and there was, everybody was making like 20 sales a week. There was two guys that were making 70 sales a week. And I took those guys to lunch on my dime every day picking their brains, getting audio recordings of how they were doing their closing, et cetera. And in every single industry, find the guys that are the very best and learn from them. And that's what working to learn really is so that then you can eventually take all of that and make yourself a, either a better employee or a better employer, a better business owner as you're building. You, you sped back to the fact that you bought LeBron James Range Rover. So <laughs> So I, I, I just very brief because we're living on time. How did that even come about? There was a, there was a celebrity broker that was in Florida when he was, when he was playing down there. I was, I think he was playing for the heat at the time. And, uh, and I was, I was looking for something that was pretty pimped out. So I didn't, I didn't get to meet LeBron, but this guy said, well, I got something that's super cool. And, uh, <laughs> it is decked out, like <laughs> decked out, decked out. So I picked that up since that time. I've, I have now really good relationships with a lot of NBA and NFL players um, that uh, over the years, in fact, at one point I had a, had a party at my house with, with every single member of the Utah Jazz at the time and all the other players that were in town and, you know, a pool party over, over the 4th of July and whatnot. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot of good relationships I have with superstars today. But uh, back then I just had money, not connections. I, I could just yeah. buy that. <laughs> Is it? It's funny. Well, quick question before I go. To, do you stop the car? No, nope. I sold uh, that a number okay. of years ago. Now I someone's like, I have Paul Hutchinson's Range Rover because they don't know where it came from. <laughs> so you spoke I about do have some cool stuff. I've got, I've got, uh, I've got, I've got an actual MRAP, like, like fully armored. Um, oh, wow. Like can take direct hits from a 50 cal armor piercing, whatever else. And I'm, I'm selling that one. I, I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm not really in the mindset of having to prepare for the apocalypse. I'm going to prevent the apocalypse by speaking to the world instead. How about that? All right. So if we have, if we have any buyers, go ahead and reach out to Paul. <laughs> That's <you're> right. <laughs> um, 
Um, so you spoke about relationships. Relationships are so important, not just in business, but life. You learn from other people. Your relationship, like you said, you know, get, find mentors that are doing better than you, that have done in the space and built that network and relationships. How do you identify and build relationships with people based on their potential, right? Because it's good to meet someone that's already made it. But how do you find those people that, you know, are still on the come up? Some people like, like myself. Right. How do you find people that have the potential? So then once they make it, they look back and be like, this person was there from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a great question. And um, because it's easy once they've already made it. Exactly. But how do you identify the ones that are? And, and there's a, there's a few key indicators, you know, number one for me, we talked about earlier is, is they've got to be a person of integrity because if they aren't, I'm not interested in helping them on their journey to financial success because they're going to screw people over, right? Yeah. So that's number one. Number two, they've got to be self-motivated. You know, if, if, if they require an alarm clock to get out of bed every morning, then they don't have a big enough dream, right? They've got to, they've got to just super excited about life so that I don't have to babysit them and tell them what to do and make them get out of bed. Now, it's not bad if you require an alarm clock to wake up in the morning every day. That's fine. You probably need a job and a, and a boss who's going to fire you if you're late. That's just, that's just how it is. But if you're going to be an entrepreneur, then you've got to be self-disciplined. And you've got you've to have something that motivates you to get out of bed in the morning, to, to make those phone calls when you don't want to, to drive those miles when you don't want to, to invest when you would rather go buy you know, a new boat or whatever, but instead you've got to invest in your company. Whatever it is, you've, you've got to, and it's also important to find guys who have clear, specific dreams and goals. They, they did a study decades ago at Yale University wherein the graduating class, they found that only 3% had clear, specific, written goals. 20 years later, that 3% was worth more in net assets than the entire 97% put together. One of the most amazing longitudinal studies that I've ever read. And it, the only difference is that they knew where they were going. They wrote it down. It wasn't their GPA. It wasn't yeah. what they were studying. None of that. And so you find somebody that's written it down that's identified where they want to go, has a clear vision of what they're creating and is self-disciplined together with integrity, you've got a winner. And yeah. I, would, I would partner up with that person. I would, that's, that's the kind of people that you want to have relationships with. And from a relationship standpoint, one last little thing, your lifestyle five years from now will be the average of the five people that you spend the most time with so five true. years from now. So true. And so if, if, you're, if you're hanging out with your beer buddies every night, you know, you know, and they're all completely broken, they've got broken marriages, five years from now, you'll probably have a broken marriage. Yes. And if they're, if, they, if they're all losing their houses and their mortgages are upside down, five years from now, your mortgage will probably be upside down. It's just how it is. Yeah. So have relationships with people who are where you want to go or who are going where you want to go and do it together. That, that, that I literally live by that. And every single friend I could say that I've ever had throughout my life is, is more successful than me and is doing better than me or is on the verge of on the line of like going to the same path. So I'm a firm, firm believer like that. And I love that you said it. You mentioned the alarm clock. What is your morning routine? My eyes wake up when the well, light right now, comes right on. Now, let's take right now away because right now you're on the move all the time and you're, you're promoting <laughs> well, even, the movie. Let's say you weren't before you were promoting movie. Oh, I, I'm always running my whole life. My, <laughs> my, my wife is like, Paul, I, 
when we first met, I was trying to find your off button. I'm pretty sure you don't have an off button, right? <laughs> I can't, I can't. I'm, I'm so excited every day. And I have, I have natural energy all day long. I don't, I don't drink any uh, caffeine drinks. I don't have a coffee in the morning, none of that stuff. Because, you know, for me, my energy is full on all day and I love it. I have, I have unlimited amounts of, of energy and passion for, for my mission and where I'm going and moving forward. So, so, you know, my, my, my path back when we were building the fund, you know, I would, I would get up in the morning and before anybody else was there, I was, I was, I was at the gym, I was at the office, I was moving forward. I was excited about making those phone calls. And then when everybody else had this very specific time frame that they work, I work nine to five. I can't work until 502. My day's done. Now, I never looked at when the day was done. I was when the work was done, right? And, and creating that. Now, it was also important that from people say, yeah, well, you know, you have to have a balance spending time with your kids. What are you doing when you're spending time with your kids? Are you sitting in front of the TV telling them to move out of the way? You know, a television is an, is an electronic income reducer, an electronic income reducer. That's a television, right? So, so yes, I, I'll watch good movies with my family, but it's, it's, it's focused family time. It's entertaining together, but it's, it's limited and physical activities together are way more important for building those relationships. And so, you know, every day I'll, I'll wake up, I'll take a look at my primary goals the long-term goals, my five and 10-year goals and say, okay, are the things that I'm doing today that are in my calendar, are they in line with that five and 10-year goal? And if you think that, hey, once I have a $48 billion company, then I don't have to have long-term goals. Well, that's how people die, right? When people retire and they start running out of energy, it's because they don't have dreams. I have as many dreams and goals today as I did when I was in my 20s. I'm always finding something that is exciting that we're moving forward. That's what gives energy to life. And, and, and that's what creates happiness. People look back, you look back on your life, the times that you're not happy, those, those are the times when you're stuck, when you're not moving forward physically or financially in your relationships, et cetera. You're just in this rut, right? How do you get out of that rut? Identify a dream, a goal in any yep. of those areas, physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationship finance, whatever it is, identify goals in those areas, get excited about moving towards those. That's how you get out of anxiety and depression. Yeah. You know, when I had my company in my early twenties that we built, that was a primary goal is helping them identify what they wanted. Cause if they don't go, if you don't have goals, you're going to get nowhere with amazing accuracy and you'll be depressed doing it. So, so much knowledge, uh, Paul, you're, you're amazing. It seems, I know we're running a short, close to an hour. So I want to ask you this question. It seems like when you take trips, you come back with great ideas. Since the British Investment Group was created after your trip with John going to Latin America to find gold. We were, I, that's a different, that's, that's for part <laughs> two. Uh, I don't, that, that story, I know um, you mentioned you might be, be making a movie from that, 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 uh, that trip. So maybe our part two will be once that movie comes out. But have you had any recent trips that have sparked any new business ideas? And if you were to start a business today, what would it be and what would be your first move? Mm, those are good. Um, yes and yes. Um, we travel all the time. Yeah. In fact, we're just in Latin America just this last week. We we're in Honduras uh, meeting with uh, some of the, the political leaders and some great, great people down there. 
um, you know, two of the kids that were depicted in the movie that we were looking for were, were from uh, Honduras in the movie. And so, you know, in traveling down there, I've, uh, and a lot of it, I've realized how many, how many powerful people around the world I could, I could greatly affect their leadership and thereby their entire country if I could do a fully immersive transformational healing experience with them. And so one of the things that I'm looking at right now is some properties in Latin America that we can buy that are, uh, you know, maybe boutique hotels with 20 plus rooms or whatever that we could continue to run as a hotel, but that I could rent my own hotel space out for, for an entire week at a time with some beautiful waterfalls in a center area and stuff and have, have some world leaders that I already work with all come together, not as a political whatever, but as in getting down to their, you know, childhood trauma type conversations, right? And, and, and helping them work through whatever things are making them not lead from a place of the heart and from a place of integrity, et cetera. And if we could do that, then we could we could literally transform entire nations with changing their leadership. So, you know, that's the thing I'm going to do. We're going to create some healing retreats and have some adults come in and work with that. I've also realized in this work of finally now going public after being undercover forever that the world needs different systems that allow them to heal from their own trauma. I've realized that that there are billions of people who are holding on to stuff from their childhood. So I'm bringing together a lot of people who have already put together programs. And I'm saying, listen, I will make it rain. You figure out what to do with the water, right? I'm yeah. going to bring in the eyeballs. I'm going to put a lot of money into expanding this audience. But this audience, especially the ones that go see Sound of Freedom, they want to know what is next. And what is next is yeah. not everybody going down and being a Rambo and going rescuing kids. No, what is next is how do we teach our kids? How do we protect our kids? How do we create stronger families? How do we, how do we shed our own trauma so that that's never coming out in verbal or physical or even sexual abuse of others? And so those are all tools that I'm putting together that we can monetize those tools because people are going to pay for complete transformational type opportunities. So you mentioned you're obviously a public figure. Now it's, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be a lot harder if you wanted to go undercover. Um, so I'm, I'm assuming that you're not as involved in, in being the, on the front line since you are a public figure now. Have you, is there someone that you replaced yourself with to continue these missions? Um, I'm sure you don't have to speak details, obviously, but um, like who's, who's taking your place? <laughs> there are a bunch of operators. Uh, former Green Berets, Navy SEALs, and other guys like myself who, who uh, have had similar training who are running their own foundations, many of them now. Many of them I met through, uh, uh, through some of those previous foundations that I worked with 10 years ago. Um, they have all left that as well, but they are good, good men and women with integrity where the dollars are actually going to the rescue and rehabilitation and reuniting of children with their families. And so the Child Liberation Foundation funds their, their foundations because they can't be public. They can't be out there raising money. They're, they're, just, they're just running their 501c3 and they're, they're doing the undercover work. So we identify groups like that. And through my public presence and our fundraising, we bring money into liberatechildren.org. And through there, we help to fund a lot of these other organizations that are, that are actively doing the work. 
Awesome. Last question. Um, I have a feeling I know the answer to this question, but what is your ultimate dream or long-term goal that you aspire to achieve? It's eradicating child trafficking, but it's bigger than that. Eradicating child trafficking can only happen by liberating humanity. And what does that mean? It's liberating ourselves from, from living a life that is based on fear, that is based on hatred, that is based on envy, that is based on judgment, that is, that is holding on to trauma of things that happened to us in our past and, and making decisions in our life and passing that trauma on to others. The only way that we're going to solve the child trafficking problem is by truly taking away the demand. And that demand side requires a, a bigger holistic approach to, to changing our perceptions of ourselves and changing our perceptions of other people. And, and coming at life and sexuality from a completely different viewpoint than what we've been conditioned to believe. Paul, if I were to go back to high school, to your high school, and speak to your best friend and your favorite teacher, who would they say you were? Um, in high school, I was, I was aspiring, but I was still kind of a nerd. You know, I, I tried to be popular, but I, but I, I wasn't as, it was funny because years later, when we go to my 20 and 30 year reunion, everybody's like, wow, you know, here the founder of this multi-billion dollar company. And all these girls are thinking, I wish I dated you back then. <laughs> yeah, I wish you even paid attention to me back then. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had, I had a few really good friends that we were close and, and, uh, had each other's backs and, um, uh, and, and had a good time. It was, it was good, clean fun. Um, but I was, I was in all the accelerated programs. You know, I, I finished most of my high school before I was finished with 11th grade. And then 12th grade, I, they didn't have any more even AP classes. So a lot of those we had to go to the college to be able to do, you know, um, I did play rugby, but I, you know, I didn't put enough time into, to play football and whatnot. And so, so my, I, they would tell you. They would tell you that I, I came from a place of compassion. I, um, one quick story that I think was super special. Um, I was in my accelerated AP calculus class and, um, and there was a test that was literally one half of our entire grade for this test. And I, I come into the class and I sit down and I, the, the test is on my, my thing and I'm just barely starting the test. And the, the vice principal walks into the room, pulls the teacher out. The teacher walks back in, takes my test, puts an A at the top of it, and says, you're needed, Paul. And because I had done that training with the peer leadership team, one of, one of the, the really popular kids had committed suicide the night before. And they couldn't let all the kids just go home. And they couldn't be in the class. And they needed somebody to come in and provide leadership and compassion and direction, and love. And the fact that he would just, you know, put an A on the test that, that, that was that big of a part of my grade, because that part of me was needed to help those kids at that time, was, was part of what helped me understand what was really important in my life then and moving forward. Wow. Paul, you are an incredible human being. Like I said, I could speak to you for not only five, I could speak to you for 24 hours. We could have a 24-hour live podcast going on. Um, hey. Your stories, your storytelling, um, 
your experiences, your relationships, everything is so, so, um, I love, I love it. I want to grow up. I want to follow your path. I want to grow up. You're, you're inspiring <laughs> a lot of people, any kids or students or even grownups that are still working towards being something. If they just look at your story and hear you talk, not only for this podcast, but every podcast, you have your own podcast that you've started. Um, you're truly inspirational. So I really, really thank you for taking the time sitting down with me. I know you mentioned the girl, you know, the girls weren't paying much attention. You have a story of stealing Superman's girlfriend. We won't get into it. <laughs> Hopefully for part two. But thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me. Any last words for the audience? Hug your kids. People ask, leaving the sound of freedom, what can I do? And that's really the answer is hug your kids. Realize that the children that are brought in to trafficking come from broken homes, come from foster programs, come from runaways. Or if they're being groomed in your own home, it's the kids who, who have super low self-esteem and they're looking down on their way to, to, to school where they you know, went through some domestic abuse, et cetera. Or you also need to understand that the biggest challenge with keeping your kids safe is not keeping them away from somebody who's going to take them down to Columbia. It's being aware that the most likely predator it's somebody you know it's an uncle it's a neighbor it's a babysitter wherein there are millions and millions and millions of children in this country billions worldwide who the most dangerous place for that child is in their own home and in their own neighborhood and having a relationship with your child where they can come to you and say dad i feel uncomfortable when you make me hug Uncle Harry, or when I go to so-and-so's house, their brother hugs me weird, or, or babysitter's been showing me pornography and says that I should trust her more than you. Whatever it is, those are the conversations you need to have a relationship with your kids to keep them safe. That's where the evil is. Yes, those things that happen in the, in the Sound of Freedom. Yes, kids are taken to other countries. Yes, there's even cases where they're put in cargo ships, et cetera. But the best thing and the most important thing that you can do is hug your kids. What are the best way to end the podcast? And I'm going to leave it on that. I want to thank you again. Thank you to everyone that tuned in. And thank you. Thank you, Neil.